Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, and we're moving on to Chapter 2, which thankfully will be shorter than the previous one, now that we're moving from the setup towards everything kicking off. So let's get started. Chapter 2, From Reform to War, 1906-1917 The proclamation of the October Manifesto seemed to augur major reform of the political system, a resumption of the course that had been started by Alexander II in the 1860s, but aborted after his assassination. Yet, it was evident that Nicola had granted a parliament under duress, the fundamental laws of April 1906, though instituting a form of constitutional monarchy, a Duma, civil rights, limited rights for trade unions, and a reduction in censorship, reaffirmed the Tsar's role as autocrat, giving him complete control of the executive, foreign policy, the church, and the armed forces. On the 3rd of June 1907, final proof that the balance of power had swung back towards the establishment came when the Second Duma was dissolved and some of its members arrested. Peter Stolypin, who had replaced Vita as Prime Minister in 1906, instituted a dramatic change in the electoral base of the Duma, drastically cutting the representation of the lower classes and increasing that of the propertied, and thereby considerably reducing the number of liberal and socialist deputies in the Third Duma, which convened in November 1907. Footnote 1. Following the October Manifesto, new political parties quickly emerged to contest the Duma elections. The cadets, or constitutional democrats, were a liberal party whose main demands were for a constituent assembly and universal suffrage, and this was supplemented by a relatively radical social program, including a solution to the land question that would involve compulsory purchase of landowners' estates. At this stage, the cadets tended to favour working with the more moderate social democrats, rather than with conservative deputies. The Octoberists, as their name suggests, supported the settlement established by the October Manifesto, and were altogether more conservative on the land question and anxious to see an end to revolutionary turbulence. Following the issuance of the Manifesto, socialist leaders such as Lenin and the Mensheviks Yuli Martov and Fedor Dan returned from exile. Trotsky had returned in secret as early as February. The Bolsheviks opted not to participate in the election to the First Duma, but the Mensheviks and SRs did, albeit with modest results. It was the cadets, in alliance with the left-leaning Trudovic faction, which represented peasants, who won a majority in the elections and the First Duma proceeded to draft a substantial body of progressive legislation. Yet after only ten weeks, the Duma was dissolved when negotiations with the Council of Ministers, appointed by and accountable to the Tsar, ended in rancor. Footnote 2. Elections to the Second Duma were carefully orchestrated by Stolypin, 
who banned meetings, removed voters from the electoral lists, and gave financial support to right-wing candidates. Although the radical right made significant strides in this second election, the clear winners were still the left, with socialists doubling their seats, the Bolsheviks participating this time. The influence of the cadets, however, was much reduced, and they gradually turned away from the radical stance they had adopted in the first Duma, opting to try to work with the government. The second Duma also proved short-lived, becoming deadlocked over land reform and the use of repression by the government. When Stolypin's demand to expel social democratic deputies and deprive some of their parliamentary immunity was rejected, it was dissolved on the 3rd of June, 1906. Footnote 3. Finally, we should note a new development, one that reacted against the radicalism of the first two Dumas, in the form of radical right street politics, evinced in the rise of the Union of the Russian People and other organizations that mobilized a heavily lower class membership around a rapidly nationalist, anti-democratic, and anti-revolutionary platform. Footnote 4. Nicolas' determination to maintain his divinely ordained position as all-powerful autocrat, hardened in the face of the radicalism displayed by the first and second Dumas, puncturing any hope he might have entertained of restoring the sacred bond between Tsar and people. At the same time, the ebbing of the mass movements from summer 1906 encouraged him to unleash the full might of state repression in order to suppress the insurgency. Already in late 1905, punitive expeditions had begun to pacify the countryside and insurrections in the Baltic and Caucasus. Following the bombing of his villa by socialist revolutionary maximalists, in which 28 were killed, including his daughter, Stolypin set up field courts martial that summarily tried and hanged up to 3,000 insurgents between 1906 and 1909. Stolypin's necktie. Footnote 5. For its part, the Union of the Russian People, with the backing of Nikola, together with paramilitary groups known as Black Hundreds, fought revolutionaries on the streets and carried out pogroms against Jews. They aimed to restore true autocracy and eliminate everything pertaining to the hated innovations of October 1905. Yet they did so through modern methods of mass mobilization. Alongside this, thousands of acts of terror were carried out by revolutionaries, mainly by SRs and nationalists, and were no longer aimed primarily at high-profile members of the political elite, but at low-ranking officials and police. Stolypin himself was eventually killed by a Jewish anarchist in Kiev in 1911, possibly with the connivance of the far right. Footnote 6. The Bolsheviks eschewed terrorist tactics, but did engage in exes, that is, armed expropriations of banks and government offices prospects for reform. The dominant discourse of 1905 was one of citizenship, rather than of socialism. The citizen was conceived as one who, regardless of the obligations and rights accorded them by virtue of the social estate into which they were born, 
insisted on their equality before the law and claimed the right to be represented and to participate in the polity on an equal basis with their co-nationals. Women were invisible when it came to the political rights of citizenship, although groups of middle-class women, inspired by the example of the Duchy of Finland, formed the All-Russian Union for Women's Equality in January 1905. Their campaign to be given the vote, however, came to naught. Political leaders, such as the cadet leader, Pavel Milyukov, disdaining to support them. Footnote 7. For peasants and workers, this essentially liberal conception of citizenship mattered. But for them, civil and political rights were inseparable from social rights. Individual rights, moreover, were inseparable from the collective rights of self-defense and subsistence. Whereas for educated society, private property was the bedrock of citizenship. For working people, citizenship, construed as an integral package of civil, political, and social rights, could not be realized without a drastic restructuring of the social order, above all, around the land question. Footnote 8. Notwithstanding this crucial difference, the concept of citizenship was rooted in a new idea of national identity. As a result of the all-nation struggle for citizenship in 1905 to 1906, Russian national identity was no longer tied to the orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality formula of Nicola I, except among conservatives, and had come to be associated with membership of a bounded political community that should be governed in the interests of its members. Footnote 9. This entailed the extension of civil and political rights to non-Russians in the empire, even though the conception of national identity that underpinned it was still implicitly imperial. With Russians assumed to have a civilizing mission to lead non-Russians towards progress. The Russianness of this conception was most starkly in evidence when it came to dealing with the challenge of rising nationalism, not least among Muslims, where liberal and even socialist opinion tended to dismiss moderate Muslim demands for representation as a symptom of fanaticism and ignorance. The period between 1907 and 1914 was referred to by contemporaries as the years of reaction, but historians today are more likely to emphasize the positive developments of this period, usually summed up as a strengthening of civil society. By this they mean a sphere of civic life in which the public expanded its activities in ways that were autonomous from the state. The origins of this sphere go back to the reign of Catherine the Great, 1762-96. to 96. But after 1905, it expanded on an unprecedented scale, with the proliferation of voluntary societies and political parties, the growth of the press and a new reading public, and the development of new forms of commercial entertainment. Footnote 10. The interest in these developments shown by historians in the last two decades has reopened a long-standing debate between those who see Russia as moving away from revolution in the period after 1905, its more evolutionary path of development obstructed by the outbreak of the First World War, 
and those who see reformist energies as having exhausted themselves by 1914 and who point to the signs of a revolutionary crisis on the eve of war. Although this debate cannot be altogether avoided, it is perhaps more illuminating to resist its either-or character and to put emphasis on the contradictoriness and complexity of developments in the post-1905 period. These developments were not only tied to the political reforms instituted by the October Manifesto and to the advance of civil society, but also to rapid economic, social, and cultural changes that did not move in tandem with high politics and are not best understood by simply asking if Russia was moving away from revolution or heading towards the abyss. Footnote 11. For many decades, the debate between optimists and pessimists focused on the Third Duma and the prospects for cooperation between the new parliament and the monarchy in setting the empire on a road to peaceful modernization. Unlike its predecessors, the Third Duma lasted its full course, its reliability secured by the simple expedient of reducing the representation of non-Russians, peasants, and workers, and increasing that of landowners and businessmen. The 1905 revolution had profoundly shaken the confidence of the nobility, who, in the face of popular insurgency and non-Russian nationalism, moved from a woolly liberalism towards an intransigent conservatism. In 1906, paying their own tribute to the idea of civil society, members of the nobility formed a pressure group, the United Nobility which campaigned successfully to reduce the representation of the lower classes in the Third Duma. The nobility dominated the state council, which had been transformed into an upper chamber of the Duma in October 1905, and they used this dominance to block legislation, emanating from the lower chamber, to extend the Zemstvos to the western provinces, to democratize the law courts and education system, and to provide legal guarantees for non-Orthodox faiths. One consequence of the failure to reform local government was that provincial governors, police, and administration carried on much as they had done for half a century. The failure of the Duma, however, cannot be laid at the door of the state council, since it managed to jeopardize the prospects for political reform by its own internal wrangling. Stolypin began his premiership keen to cooperate with the Duma in implementing reforms that would buttress social stability, and his agrarian reforms were gradually passed into legislation. The Octoberists constituted the linchpin of Stolypin's support in the Duma, but they increasingly divided between those who leaned towards the cadets and those who leaned towards the nationalists, a party that emerged in October 1909. More generally, Stolypin's ability to secure cooperation between Duma and government was weakened by his own forceful character, by rightist intrigues, and by the withdrawal of the Tsar's support. His successor as Prime Minister, V. N. Kokovtsov, lacking his energy and vision, was unable to cobble together a working block of support in the Duma, and relations between Octoberists and Nationalists became deadlocked. Overall, the legislative record of the Duma was not impressive, and as a mechanism designed to transform the political system, it was a clear failure. Footnote 12. 
If we look at relations between Duma and government from a less institutional standpoint, however, their inability to cooperate becomes harder to explain. The expansion of a modern version of Russian national identity might have been expected to cement an alliance between a significant part of the educated public and government, if only because of loose consensus around foreign policy. The revolution strengthened a conception of the vital forces of the nation that was no longer tied closely to the state. Yet the liberal opposition never doubted that the Russian state must be defended against foreign threat, and against the exigent clamour of her non-Russian peoples. Footnote 13. So far as foreign policy was concerned, a broad swath of elite opinion backed the government's determination to slow, and, with hope, to reverse Russia's decline as a great power, manifest in her defeat by Japan, in Austria's annexation of Bosnia, and soon in her impotence during the Balkan Wars. The main threat, of course, came from an expansionist Germany, notably in southeastern Europe, where, for strategic and economic reasons, Germany was cooperating with the Ottoman government, particularly in the plan to construct the Berlin-Baghdad Railway, 1903. In aggressive arms sales by the Krupp and Mauser companies and in various Prussian military missions, Germany's clear desire to expand its power aroused anxiety across Russia's elites, to which the press gave political shape. The conservative newspaper New Times, Novo Vremia, advocated a firm alliance with France and Britain to counter German expansionism, while the more widely read liberal newspaper, The Russian Word, Ruskoslovo, took the same position, although decrying jingoism. This made diplomatic efforts to mitigate tensions with Germany difficult. Footnote 14. Certainly there were differences among the elites, notably between a vocal lobby advocating Slavic unity and cooler heads, such as Stolypin and Milyukov, who warned of the danger of war yet all agreed that it was Russia's historic destiny to maintain its status as a great power and supported the government's efforts to advance Russia's interests in the deeply unstable Balkans, even if this ran the risk of war. Cadets, Octoberists, and Nationalists all backed the massive rearmament drive of the government, which led to roughly one-third of the budget going towards the expansion of the navy and army between 1909 and 1913. Russia's military expenditure came to exceed that of Britain, which had a far-flung empire to protect. Footnote 15. Her naval expenditure, in fact, lagged well behind that of Britain and Germany, but expenditure on land warfare was much greater. Footnote 16. So far as domestic policy was concerned, the symbol of Russia won and divisible was one around which a broad swath of the elite could adhere, even if some, like Milyukov, favoured a less chauvinist policy towards the non-Russians than did the united nobility. Footnote 17. This was evident in widely shared fears of pan-Turkism and pan-Islamism. It was evident, too, in the Duma's response to a number of conservative measures to restrict the rise of non-Russian nationalism. It agreed to reduce the power of Finnish institutions, to support settlers in Central Asia who seized nomadic grazing land, to increase restriction on Jews, and to detach the region of Chelm Kolm, 
from the Kingdom of Poland and to incorporate it as a true Russian province. This last action in September 1913 incensed Polish nationalists such as Roman Dmowski. The Duma also supported Stolypin's proposal to extend Zemstvos to the western provinces. In reality, despite his plan to base electoral assemblies on nationality not socialist state, a ploy to safeguard Russian interests. Indeed, the Duma showed only lukewarm support for increasing Polish representation and none at all for increasing Jewish representation. Footnote 18. As with foreign policy, then, despite entrenched divisions between the Duma, State Council, and ministers, a broad swath of the elite subscribed to an imperial version of Russian national identity. It was the Tsar himself who prevented this shared sense of national identity cementing a block between government and the Duma, for he was not prepared to tolerate the Duma encroaching on matters of defense and foreign policy areas that remained his prerogative under the fundamental laws. Footnote 19. If we turn attention away from the Torried Palace, seat of the new parliament, the prospects for Russia look less bleak, since this was a period of activism in the public sphere and of rapid cultural and social change. Many now see the years after 1905 as the time when people of all walks of life tried to realize the liberties of conscience, speech, assembly, association, and religion that had been granted by the October Manifesto. Professional associations of doctors, lawyers, and others grew more active. Universities expanded. Political parties were established. Most of these professionals rejected old-style family life, female subordination, and police rule, and sought to enlist education and social reform in the battle against communal control and the tyranny of custom. Yet, though these professionals adopted the liberal ideal of the autonomous individual, they generally rejected Western bourgeois regard for self-interest and self-fulfillment. Footnote 20. By 1900, Russia already had some 10,000 voluntary associations, and these now mushroomed, in areas as diverse as science and education, agriculture, charity, sports, or local history. This represented a strengthening of civil society, and may, correspondingly, have represented a diminution of the power of the state, although most of these societies existed legally and thus were ratified by the state. Moreover, their initiatives in such areas as improving public health, popularizing science, expanding education, or promoting patriotism coincided with the government's own projects. Footnote 21. Another manifestation of the development of a public sphere lay in the rapid expansion of the press and of publishing more generally which was aided by the easing of censorship. By 1913, Russia was the second largest producer of books in the world, ranking close to Germany in the number of titles. Footnote 22. Newspapers sought actively to shape public opinion and ministers were forced to justify their policies through them. The press expanded vigorously as a result of a rapidly growing reading public advertising revenue, new technologies that made illustration relatively cheap, and because there was a taste among new mass readers for content of a sensational nature. Newly literate readers consumed adventure stories, 
detective fiction, romantic fiction, all of which tended to promote more secular, rational, and cosmopolitan attitudes and encouraged individuals to feel they could take some responsibility for their lives. Footnote 23. The Gazeta Copaica, penny newspaper, was a tabloid produced in St. Petersburg, aimed at a lower-class readership, which by 1909 had achieved a circulation of 250,000, big by the standards of the time. By 1911, there were 29 penny dailies in circulation. Footnote 24. To grab their readers' attention, these newspapers relied on news and sensational crime stories, sometimes accompanied by woodcut illustrations, along with advertisements for all kinds of consumer goods. At the same time, journalists on these newspapers sought to draw the lower classes into the public sphere, promoting the values of honest work, individual choice, and social aspiration. Footnote 25. The appearance of tabloids aimed at a lower-class readership was part of the growth of a consumer culture aimed at the urban classes with a small amount of disposable income. New patterns of leisure emerged in the city, with commercial entertainments such as pleasure gardens, music hall, popular theatre, silent movies, and detective fiction, all offered to the lower classes at relatively affordable prices. These new cultural products exposed peasant migrants to the city to new kinds of characters and storylines. As the historian Louise McReynolds has argued, quote, rude resistance to authority, the predatory sexuality of gold diggers, even the sharpened ethnic awareness of city folk, were all new experiences that gave characters motives unknown in the recent past. Personality became the focus and driving engine of narrative. End quote. Footnote 26. Her larger argument, and the point at issue in this section, is that mass culture tended to depoliticize visions of the social order, to downplay class conflict, and to extol middle-class values that fostered social cohesion. This was almost certainly one effect of consumer culture, but we should be careful of assuming that it precluded the formation of more exclusive identities. In the cities, the structure of retailing was still traditional, in that the vast majority of urban consumers bought their goods in markets and fairs. Yet the appearance of the department store captured the imagination of urbanites, with its bright lights and advertisements, luxurious interiors, fancy display windows, and the variety of merchandise. The department store was the symbol par excellence of consumer culture, using goods and promotional images to educate customers, mainly female, in fashion and good taste, and to promote desire and to construct fantasies of affluence. The department store was principally a place where the bourgeoisie learned how to dress, furnish its homes, and spend its leisure time. But the lower classes, too, learned about the fashions of the day, standards of comfort, and ideals of respectability, mainly through window shopping. These things even percolated to the countryside, or at least to those regions from which there was extensive migration. Mikhail Isakovsky, whose sister migrated to Moscow from Smolensk to work in a textile mill, recalls how proud she was of the fashionable sack, a loose-fitting coat which draped from the shoulders. Quote, Women saved because you could not live without a sack. 
Those who did not have a sack felt they were deprived of their full rights, not fully valued, on the slide. There were endless conversations among the women workers about buying a sack, and if they bought one, they wrote to the village at once to tell everyone that the long-desired sack had been purchased. End quote. Footnote 27. Peasant migrants took back to the village newly acquired tastes in dress, home decorating, and diet, as well as cheap consumer durables. The acquisition of fashionable manufactured clothing, samovars, or lamps helped to shape notions of respectability, although intellectuals and churchmen were quick to deprecate tasteless and useless dandyism. The crucial point for the argument about where Russia was going, however, is that the values of consumer culture were shared across classes, shared between the lower middle classes and the respectable strata of the lower classes, and thus potentially capable of fostering an individualism that was antipathetic to class consciousness. The historian Wayne Derler argues that the, quote, culture, values, and goals of the majority of workers owed little to Marxist intellectuals. The dynamics of urban life afforded industrial workers opportunities to interact in a complex environment with other social groups. Growing literacy among workers and exposure to the penny press, film, and other commercialized forms of culture encouraged workers to assimilate to the culture and values of the larger society. End quote. Footnote 28. There is no doubt that working people were eager to engage with consumer culture, quickly coming to appreciate style over utility in matters of dress, for example. Single women workers spent about one-fifth of their income on clothing, with many paying seamstresses to copy the latest styles from fashion magazines. Young men, too, learned that dressing well was an assertion of self-respect and was likely to command the respect of one's peers. The young Simon Kanachikov, newly arrived in the city and soon to become a Bolshevik, bought himself a holiday outfit, a watch, and for the summer, a wide belt, grey trousers, a straw hat, and some fancy shoes. Quote, In a word, I dressed in the manner of those young urban metalworkers who earned an independent living and didn't ruin themselves with vodka. End quote. Footnote 29. Stylish dress, of course, helped to attract potential sexual partners. In Soligalich and Chuklomsky count in Soligalich and Chukslomsky counties in the province of Kostroma, local women preferred men who had lived in St. Petersburg. They were, quote, much more sophisticated than local men. The conversation was often indistinguishable from that of an urban dweller, though adorned with fanciful expressions. Their manner was copied from that of the metropolitan petty bourgeois. They could dance. They wore dandified suits. End quote. Footnote 30. Yet, as the example of Konechikov suggests, some caution is warranted before we assume that the attractions of consumer culture were necessarily at odds with the simultaneous development of class consciousness. Photographs of trade union leaders invariably show them in urban, not peasant, attire. Three-piece suits, straw boaters, canes, and leather shoes. Footnote 31. The pleasures associated with the purchase of enticing new goods and with new forms of commercialized leisure may have had the potential to promote social cohesion. But any such potential was provisional and easily blocked by countervailing forces. 
The pressures of work and daily life were an ever-present reminder to working people of their subordinate place in the social order. The pleasure of reading an adventure story or dressing respectably on a Sunday afternoon offered an escape, but only a fleeting one. If we look more closely at labor, we begin to appreciate that although a potential for reformism did exist after 1905, it was thwarted by the regime itself. In June 1906, a law permitting labor unions was enacted, and strikes were partially organized. By early 1907, as many as 300,000 had joined unions, more than half the workforce in some trades. Footnote 32. In Western Europe and the USA, trade unions served both to extend the influence of workers in industry and politics, and to incorporate them into the capitalist order. In Russia, trade unions served not to promote the interest of workers through the existing system, but to articulate a radical challenge to it. The law on trade unions was vague and administered by the police, the perfect formula for official abuse. And following Stolypin's coup of the June 3rd police repression, combined with economic recession, rapidly undermined the union movement. Between 1906 and 1909, 350 trade unions were shut down, and about 500 were refused registration. Nevertheless, workers made some gains from the revolution. Working hours in large-scale factory industry were reduced by 8% by 1913, and by that date the average annual wage in nominal terms was 36% higher than in 1904. Footnote 33. Employers played their part in suppressing trade unions and in resisting any modernization of industrial relations. In St. Petersburg, in particular, the Society of Factory and Works Owners made a sustained attempt to rationalize the labor process, yet maintain an autocratic system of industrial relations. Footnote 34. Efforts to extend labor protection were resisted by the industrialist lobby, they succeeded in reducing employers' contributions to social insurance. But finally, in January 1912, the Duma did pass legislation granting insurance against accidents and illness. Following the Lena massacre, discussed in the section On the Eve of War, the State Council confirmed this. It was precisely the closeness of the government to the employers that prevented the separation of economic and political conflict that generally held in the West, and which facilitated the incorporation of labor into the capitalist system. In Russia, by contrast, state and capital appeared to constitute a single mechanism of exploitation and domination. One consequence was that worker resistance often focused not on capital in the abstract, but on the person of the foreman, who lorded it over the workers, or on the police and Cossacks. What has been called autocratic capitalism fused all the resentments of modern capitalism. Conflict over the distribution of wages and profit and resentment at the intensity and boredom of mechanized work, with more traditional resentments and memories of the village. Footnote 35. The subordination of the factory, for example, might be perceived through the lens of serfdom, so that aspects of work relations such as not being addressed by foremen with the polite form of you, resonated with the despotism of the political system as a whole. 
resistance to both the state and capital became condensed in notions of arbitrariness, rightlessness, and the denial of dignity. Conversely, however, there were still workers who expected employers and government to act as paternalist protectors, and when they failed to do so, felt a sense of betrayal. It would be misleading to suggest that autocratic capitalism made workers revolutionary. Recall the endless complaints about the servility of the backwards masses. But the combination of the elemental energy of the peasant bunt, the explosion of violent anger, with the constantly frustrated routines of collective organization was highly combustive. Moreover, the increasing articulation of economic and political grievances in the language of class and socialism helped to produce very high levels of labour militancy. Nowhere else in Europe was the level of strikes so high, in 1905-06 and again in 1912-14, the peaks of strike activism. The average number of strikers each year was equivalent to almost three quarters of the factory workforce. Footnote 36. And these strikes, as we have seen, easily took on a political complexion. Finally, we may note how a theme that was to come to prominence in 1917 was already adumbrated in 1905-06, namely that of control by workers over management. In the print industry especially, the idea of worker autonomy became very popular, but elsewhere too. Workers' representative organs at the level of the enterprise began to encroach on the rights of the management, demanding oversight of hiring and firing, the appointing of administrative personnel, or the imposition of fines. Such claims for control within the workplace would, in 1917, be extended to social and political life as a whole. These were class-based demands and posed a more frontal challenge to capitalism than did demands for citizenship. Yet in these years, socialist ideas of class did not yet pull against liberal ideas of citizenship in the way they would come to do under the provisional government. The revolutionary socialist opposition grew rapidly between 1905 and 1907. The Bolsheviks pushed for an armed insurrection to overthrow the regime, but during 1905 had less impact on the burgeoning labor movement than the Mensheviks, who threw themselves into organizing strikes, trade unions, and Soviets. The factional split was by no means as deep at the grassroots as is often supposed, but it would be broadly true to say that the Bolsheviks were tougher, bolder, more disciplined, more intolerant, more self-confident, more amoral, and less squeamish about using violence and undemocratic means than their rivals, who were more cautious, more circumspect, more inclined to waver, more committed to democracy, more intolerant of primitive sloganizing. The growth of the RSDLP came between 1906 and 1907, when the Bolsheviks grew rather fast, having about 58,000 members by spring 1907, compared with the Mensheviks' 45,000. In the European part of the empire, the RSDLP was strongest in Ukraine, especially in the Donbass, in the central industrial region around Moscow, in St. Petersburg, and in the Urals. In non-Slav areas of the empire, Russian speakers tended to form the core of SDs, except in the Caucasus. 
Nevertheless, the Polish and Lithuanian Social Democrats, the Latvian Social Democrats, and the Jewish Bund, all affiliated to the RSDLP at the 4th Congress in 1906, the party claiming a membership of 150 to 170,000 by spring 1907. Footnote 37. This looks impressive until one remembers that the Union of the Russian People and other radical right organizations claimed a membership of 410,000 in the same year, although whole families were sometimes claimed as members. They too being strong in Ukraine and Bessarabia. Footnote 38. The figures for the number of Bolsheviks and Mensheviks in particular should be taken with a pinch of salt. The differences between the two factions of the RSDLP were apparent in the big cities, but in most provincial centres the two factions barely existed, or were content to tolerate one another in a single organisation. In much of Siberia, the Urals, and parts of Ukraine, most social democratic organisations remained unified, and many of the abstruse but legal disputes that split the party leadership had little resonance among rank-and-file social democrats, with the possible exception of liquidationism, that is, the view that the RSDLP and the SRs should liquidate their underground organs and work exclusively in the legal organs. Arguably, the most stable social democratic organizations were the Bund, the Latvian Social Democrats, and the Georgian Social Democrats, where nationalist resentments reinforced socialism, and these seem to have been much less exercised by the ideological issues that obsessed Lenin. What is clear is that state repression, not least via police infiltration, was highly effective from 1908 in destroying SD organizations, with leaders arrested or forced into exile, and activists compelled to lie low, and with tens of thousands of members dropping out of party activity. By 1908, there were 260 SD organizations, and this fell to 109 by 1911. Footnote 39. The socialist revolutionaries grew during the revolution to become the largest left party, with a membership drawn from all classes. By 1907, the SRs had 287 organizations with 60,000 to 65,000 members and a penumbra of sympathizers, totaling around 300,000. Footnote 40. They enjoyed success especially in the countryside, but also among factory workers, soldiers and sailors, teachers, paramedics, agronomists, and many others. The SRs held their first congress in December 1905, and this refused to back a call for the immediate seizure of landed estates but committed the party to political revolution via armed insurrection. However, the Central Committee had only loose control over the provincial committees, and the SRs, at the best of times, a very loose political coalition, were soon weakened by deepening ideological splits. On the far right, the popular socialists, close to the cadets, split from the party in 1906. On the far left, SR maximalists, no more than a couple of thousand workers, students, and employees with an average age of 25 were barely distinguishable from anarchists, exulting in carrying out exes and calling for mass terror and the immediate creation of a toiler's republic.
and in 1909, on the right of the party, emerged a group of veteran populists, notably Iki Breshkovskaya, the grandmother of the revolution, who called for the abandonment of all underground organization in favor of work in the legal labor organizations, cooperatives, and zemstvos. From late 1907, having restored a semblance of order in society, the regime set about destroying the mass organization of the SRs, such as the Peasant Union, the Railway and Teachers' Unions, and most of its combat units. The Okhrana had a major asset in the shape of Evno Azev, head of the combat organization from 1904 to 1908, who worked as an informer. In fact, only about 12 of the acts of terror carried out between 1902 and 1914 were the work of the combat organization. The rest, over 230 in number, were carried out by armed detachments, or flying squads, loosely attached to local and provincial organizations of the party. Footnote 41. Nevertheless, the combat organization enjoyed an aura of heroism and martyrdom, receiving donations from liberal businessmen, Jewish emigres, and others. Between 1908 and 1913, the number of SR organizations fell from 350 to 102, and these were mainly at provincial level. Footnote 42. Despite the swinging setback suffered by the revolutionary left, it is easy to overlook the fact that those speeches, leaflets, illegal publications, trade unions, medical funds, and evening classes, it is easy to overlook the fact that through speeches, leaflets, illegal publications, trade unions, medical funds, and evening classes, activists managed to put into circulation a discourse of socialism. In the major factories, there was now a layer of conscious workers, many of them members or supporters of the SDs or SRs, who were able to give some political direction to workers' struggles. They were mainly young men, concentrated especially in the metalworking industry. Men who sought, through self-education, self-discipline, and struggle, to improve themselves and the lot of their fellow workers. Marxism, with its assignment to the working class of a pivotal historical role, was particularly attractive to them, though some believed in the mission of the entire toiling people, and a few were products of the temperance movement, or disciples of Lev Tolstoy. This conscious minority often looked down on the grey workers around them, who seemed to look forward only to getting drunk, or to returning to their plot of land in the countryside, or who acquiesced in suffering in this world in the hope that this would bring them salvation in the next. Yet they were regularly surprised when the sullen quiescence of these grey workers exploded into violent rioting. Footnote 43. For their part, the grey workers looked ambivalently on the conscious worker, whose disquieting impact is vividly described by Buzinov, a worker memoirist. Quote, his appearance was fierce, his gaze terrifying. It seemed he hated all the workers, and so there was always an empty space around his bench, as though it had been infected by the plague. Footnote, end quote, footnote 44. Nevertheless, they stood in awe of these students, admiring their knowledge, their indomitable courage, and their spirit of self-sacrifice. And in times of crisis, they turned to them for leadership. 
and that's going to do it for this week. Another long one, but I promise next week is going to be shorter. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistgreeting at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistgreeting. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.